You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. So welcome to Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast, which is really apt for today. <laughs> yes, we're so <laughs> consumable. And Shane, we've got a lot to chew into here today. <laughs> you know, I've been ruminating on this a little bit since we started talking about this episode. Are you hungry for this topic? I'm so hungry for this knowledge. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> How many food puns can we get into this episode? There are a million food puns in the world. <laughs> and... <laughs> I think we've just got to lean into it personally. That's it. That's it. We just got to own it. Here we go. <laughs> All right. So just out of curiosity, Shane, what is your experience with picky eating? My experience is that I, for most of my entire life, aside from like the last couple of years, have been a pretty picky eater myself. You were a picky eater? Yeah. I didn't know this. <laughs> Check this out. It was stupid rules that I set up for myself. So a lot of it was like anything with the word salad in it, I refused to eat. I would not eat Whoa. anything with the word salad. It could have been egg salad. It could have been chicken salad. It could have been jello salad. It could have been fruit salad. I would literally not eat anything like that. I still am of the mindset that lettuce is just crunchy water and it's useless. It's merely a <laughs> vessel to deliver food. However, I've gotten over these ridiculous rules and I've started eating salad. But for a long time, I was a picky eater. That's great. Yeah. What is it that you did eat? <laughs> so for a long time, I was not vegetarian. So I would eat everything else. I would eat vegetables. I would eat, you know, a lot of that. I would eat a lot of fruits and I would eat, you know, a lot of meats and stuff, but I would just literally not eat salad. That was like my big thing. Okay. What about your kids? Do you have experience with them being picky eaters? Yes. So my daughter was very picky. She was very rigid in what she would eat and what she wouldn't eat. Sure. A lot of what we had to do with her was get her to try and taste some new things and just give her the options like, Hey, taste this. And then you don't have to eat all of it, but just taste it and then see if you like it and then kind of build from there. But yeah, she was a really picky eater for a very long time. Now she'll at least try everything. She won't eat everything, but she'll at least try it. Okay. Again, this is interesting to me. I really did not experience much of this throughout my life when I was growing up. My sister was fairly picky. She went through this phase where she'd only eat, I don't know, mac and cheese or sandwiches or something. I'm, I'm not totally sure. But she went through a phase of being pretty picky that was relatively short-lived. But I have not only never been picky, I've been pretty adventurous and really willing to try just about anything. And I know I can specifically trace this back to my family really elevating people who were adventurous eaters. Specifically, they would say that if you're willing to try new things, that you're smart. And I was like, well, I want to be smart, so I'd try new things. Yeah. And my grandpa would talk about all these exotic foods he had eaten when he traveled to other countries and to other states and all these different places that he's like, oh, I've tried this and I've tried this and I've tried this. And it was always this type of behavior was venerated as a really good thing. It showed that you were world traveled and you were creative and you were thoughtful. And so all of these things made this a very high lofty thing to be. And so I always just tried everything. And the only things were like, there were foods I just didn't like very much. For a long time, I didn't like artichoke. I didn't like tomatoes. I never liked lamb. There were lots of those stinky cheeses I never liked. Yeah. But for the most part, I would try just about anything for a very long time. Although my diet is much more restricted now, I guess it's important to point out, we'll get to this later, but it wasn't like out of disgust, but out of a choice to just choose a different lifestyle in terms of my eating. I also think that inside of the parameters of the diet I've chosen, 
I'm also still very not picky. I also really used to hate coconut, but now I will eat. I love coconut. I'll eat coconut, tomatoes, artichoke, all that stuff I used to avoid. I now very much like. Yeah. It was in grad school. I met someone who was an adult also in grad school who would eat three things and Dr. Pepper. Yeah. That was it. And I never encountered anything like that in my adult life. Sure, I'd met people who had a preference for things and they'd usually get the thing that they liked. But I'd never seen anyone who had restricted their diet that far before. And it was beyond confusing to me. It was something that I couldn't even understand at all. You know, for me, I think that the way that I broke out of it myself was that I started kind of trying because I always like to try stuff. I would always like you mentioned, like being an adventurous eater. I would be that person, too, where it'd be like, okay, I'm going to go get sushi. And if I get sushi at the time when I was eating meat, I'd be like, well, they have eel. So I'm going to go ahead and try that. You know, people would be like, you want to eat eel? I'm like, you know what? It's pretty tasty. (laughs) You know, I would kind of like dive out in that way. And then when I started realizing that I wasn't eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, a lot of that was learning how to prepare it in a way that I liked it. And then once I did that, I would eat anything. And pretty much now I'll eat just about anything within my restricted diet. Yeah, for sure. All right. So as you might be able to tell from our five minutes of rambling on this, that we are going to be talking about picky eating and specifically why people, mostly children, but why people become picky eaters. What are the implications of picky eating and essentially what it is. We're not going to be going over the treatments or interventions for dealing with picky eating in this episode. It's a very important topic, and we just really had to narrow down what we were talking about today. And a general overview of picky eating was important to set the foundation so that we could talk about that treatment in a future episode. And we're definitely going to do that. I've already got it scheduled for today. We're just going to talk about why people become picky eaters and some of the implications of that. Yeah. So I think it's probably good to start with a definition, right? That's the best place to start with any topic that we're covering. It's like, how do you define this? Most of the time. All right. So Shane, bring us in. What is picky eating? All right. So by definition, picky eating is sometimes called fussy eating, fatty eating, or choosy eating and can be characterized as an unwillingness to try new foods or even familiar foods, a disinterest in food, and usually a strong preference for particular foods. So it encompasses quite a bit. Right. And it is important to note, and we'll get to this in a moment, that picky eating is not necessarily following a specific diet, but I'll get to that in a second. Another element of this is that there is also this psychological diagnosis that's in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or DSM-5, which is the most recent one. It used to be called something else, but it's now called Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, or ARFID, which maybe is pronounced ARFID. I'm not sure. That's how it's spelled. (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and call it ARFID. ARFID. That sounds great. And this is specifically characterized by significant weight loss, failure to meet expected weight gains, significant nutritional deficiency, dependence on supplements to meet nutritional needs, or marked interference with normal psychological functioning due to those feeding behaviors, such as lack of adequate nutrition. And I think that brings us to the point that we really want to drive home here is that When we talk about picky eating, we are not really talking about eating disorders. We're not talking about disordered eating or any of those medical concerns that come up. What we're talking about specifically with picky eating is that we're referencing behavioral patterns 
in which a child is selective about their food or an adult is selective about their food. Eating disorders are typically a medical condition that have long-standing implications, right? Yeah. There are a range of examples of eating disorders, but some include issues with being able to physically swallow due to some kind of injury, some kind of disfiguration. There could be any number of reasons, right? Right. I can't remember if you mentioned this earlier, but we were talking about this before we started, I think, is that there are infants or small children who require these, they're called gastrointestinal tubes, which is kind of what it sounds like. They basically punch a hole into the stomach cavity and it goes into the stomach and they attach a little food bag that delivers the nutrients straight into the stomach. There are a lot of reasons that this might need to be the case. Again, if there is any kind of damage or disfiguration to the esophagus or other problems with the oral feeding cavity, and in very extreme circumstances, if you have a child who is so food selective that they just will not eat, they will not put those things in their mouth, chew it up and swallow it, then there are times when they might make the choice to go ahead and go through the surgery to put in those GI tubes or those GI bags or whatever. So that's another thing that sometimes can contribute to the picky eating if picky eating was not the reason it was put in in the first place. Yeah. And just as an example, I worked with a person who had a pretty restricted diet. They would eat nothing but soft foods like French fries and noodles and stuff like that. And he was diagnosed with a medical condition where he had, they described it as a deficit of mastication. Wow. Essentially what it was is he couldn't chew. And so it was originally thought that he had a restricted diet, but the truth is, is like, he actually had a problem with discriminating what was food and what wasn't. He would eat soap and deodorant and he would eat a lot Ah. of things. He had a pretty wide array of what he would eat. Not all of it nutritional. Yeah. The problem was that he couldn't chew certain foods. And so when you would introduce harder foods, he wouldn't be able to chew it. So he wouldn't be able to swallow it. So he wasn't gaining that nutritional value from those foods. So it was a specific eating disorder that he had. Poor guy. Yeah. Yeah. Another non-example of picky eating, or which is to say that this would not be counted as picky eating, would be where you have a major allergy to foods. So in fact, we should probably say here and maybe have started with this. It's a good idea to ensure that picky eating, if you are experiencing this or dealing with this, that it isn't due to allergies or some medical condition before trying to put in some kind of intervention or treatment in place for that. If that's a concern, I would recommend that you definitely go get that checked out with a medical professional and make sure that the reason that the child is being food selective doesn't have to do with allergies or a medical condition. And to kind of further elaborate on that piece there is when you're working on picky eating and you start developing interventions or trying to help treat it, you should be doing this in a collaborative way. You should be working with a team of professionals to do this. It does not take one person to do this. It does take multiple people who are experts in different areas around this because there are specific nuances related to food that you have to be mindful of. Things like, can the person chew? Can the person swallow? Are they meeting their nutritional needs? What types of behaviors are around that? There are so many things that go into food in general, like specifically food and eating behaviors, that you should be working with a treatment team. Right. And it's important that everybody on that team has clear lines of communication with everyone on that team so that everybody knows what's being done as part of the intervention and treatment for that individual. And we'll go more into depth on what that entails when we go into the treatment strategies in that future episode. But just know that this is something that's really important that everyone is very clearly involved in what is going on and everyone remains on the same page and sort of in the know in terms of what's being tried, what's working, what isn't, because nutrition can be an area where there can be some danger if there are conflicting approaches to what's going on, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. So you can actually mess up a lot of different patterns and stuff too if you have a bunch of people doing a bunch of different things. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important to be on the same page. And it is also important to point out here how difficult this is emotionally for caregivers and parents. There are a lot of contingencies. There's a lot of pressure for parents and caregivers to provide adequate nutrition. And a food selective child may give the appearance to people who don't really know what's going on. If they were to like see this family out at a restaurant or they maybe are friends of the family and they happen to have a meal together in some way, and they might get the impression mistakenly that that parent is not taking adequate care of that child, that the child maybe looks or appears to be malnourished, isn't eating appropriate foods, maybe even has some inappropriate mealtime behaviors. And then think, well, this parent is doing a bad job. The person who is ultimately responsible for that child is going to be aware of the kind of judgment that's coming down on them when they're in those situations. Yeah. I mean, think of it like this, too. There was a period of time where the culture and society around autism believed that autism was caused by refrigerator moms. Yeah. Mothers who were cold toward their children. Yeah. Yeah. Which is absolutely not the case. And so when you're working with caregivers, understanding that they are struggling with this just as much as that child is. So being compassionate is gonna be really important for those of you who are not seeing this. I can tell you as a parent, it is so stressful, especially raising my kids vegetarian, it is so stressful to make sure that they get everything they need to adequately develop. It is a stressor that is always on my mind. Sure, yeah, I mean, I can't even really imagine, but I can empathize with your position and what you're saying. Furthermore, others who don't understand how picky eating develops are probably likely to blame the caregivers for their child's behavior and therefore create an even more stressful environment for that family and especially for those caregivers. And of course, this isn't news to all the parents out there who are listening to this or someone that you know even or that you've been around this that have a child or have children who are picky eaters. But maybe if you see someone dealing with this, now you maybe are more likely to be able to understand that they are in a really difficult position in dealing with that child's behavior. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about different forms of pickiness because we're not talking about disordered eating. We're talking about specific types of pickiness. Yep. So let's dig into this a little bit. When we talk about food pickiness or food selectivity, it can take a bunch of different forms, including texture, right? Do you have any foods that you hate the texture of? Not really. I used to have a thing with the texture of tomatoes, but again, I kind of got over that. They have a weird sort of rubbery outside gooey inside thing that didn't immediately appeal to me. Although I think honestly, it was more the flavor. I just like to say the texture, but no texture hasn't really been an issue for me. How about you? When I used to eat meat, gristle in beef Ooh. used to make me gag. That would be something that would get it in my mouth and be like, Oh, oh I can't do it. So <laughs> that never bothered me actually. So that was the one that would always get to me is that cartilage, that chewy fat, ugh, all that stuff was just a bummer for me. There are people who really don't like the sort of tenderness of mushrooms, for example. For them, it's a texture issue. But this is one of the ways in which pickiness can show up is around things like texture. As you mentioned, the one individual you worked with who wouldn't, who couldn't eat harder, more solid foods and would only eat those sort of softer foods. And so there are those people who will prefer things that are very soft and very easy to chew. And so that might yeah. be what they're food selectivity or their food pickiness looks like another one too that we talk about would be color any food colors that bum you out <laughs> i mean only when it's off color from what i know it's supposed to be but generally <laughs> no um for a lot of people though green things they really are turned off by yeah i could see that i think the colors of food that are not naturally that color in general i have a hard time with like green eggs and ham i think i would have a hard time with yeah <laughs> 
That's a good point. But colors that we don't see often in food are something that would strike me as funny, like something being neon blue. Yeah, that's a good point. Think about sitting down for dinner and the mashed potatoes on your plate are neon blue. That to me would be like, oh, I can't do this, but I can eat blue raspberry candy and be fine. That's fair. Although, you know, it's interesting too. The very first time that I saw purple and white carrots, my immediate thought was I need to try that right now. I was really excited too. <laughs> I did that with, with purple sweet potatoes. I was like, hell yeah, let me get some of that. <laughs> that looks so cool. But when I was younger, I'd have been like, absolutely not. For the same reason, I wouldn't try beets. Sure. Yeah. So what's wrong with that stupid carrot? <laughs> carrots are supposed to be orange yeah. get out of here purple carrot. <laughs> you're wrong you're wrong for being purple carrot <laughs> how dare you <laughs> obviously the presentation can be important in a way that affects children and people generally speaking that is if it looks appetizing versus unappetizing the way it's arranged how many or how much of something that there is the smell obviously can have an impact here, what it smells like. Going back to the sort of the color thing, if it looks like a salad, that might be something that turns someone off, even if it ends up tasting really, really good. So the presentation can be something that the form that food pickiness takes is just how things look. Yeah. And I think, I don't know how specific this is to the United States because we do have so many brands and logos and everything, but specifically brands related to food, right? Yeah. Growing up, I would rather eat Fruit Loops than Magic O's. Even though they were literally the same thing. Right. I learned later as an adult that companies would repackage cereal into cheaper or different brands, even though it'd be the same company. Yeah. They'd repackage it under a different brand to be like, okay, well, if you don't want to buy Fruit Loops, you can still buy different Fruit Loops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the other one, too, there are specific restaurants. I think McDonald's is ubiquitous enough around the world to use that as an example because there are children who will only eat from McDonald's, for example. That's the only place that they'll ever go and accept food from is from McDonald's. Mm -hmm. And so like restaurant types like that. And then as you said, the packaging can be really important. I've actually heard of a child who when a company just changed their packaging and it was the exact same food, kid just wouldn't eat it anymore because the packaging yeah. looked different even though it was the literally exact same thing. Those are all things that they will start to get selective about potentially. Well, and <laughs> this is something I was thinking because we have international listeners. I have thought about Vegemite for many, many years <laughs> and I don't know what That's it great. is. And I am so afraid to try it really? because I don't know what it is. I mean, I would try it if it were in front of me. However, I just, I can't get past the brand. I would struggle with that. I, that's a restriction that I would have. I'd be like, well, Vegemite doesn't sound appetizing. That brand doesn't sound appetizing. If you described it as like a spread, I'd probably eat it. But it's just funny, like brands like that, because that's a specific brand. It's actually funny you say that because, again, my immediate reaction has always been that I've really wanted to try it. <laughs> I'm trying to look right now and see what's in it. It says that it's made from leftover brewer's yeast extract with various vegetable and spice additives. Well, I mean, as long as I can sort of see what's in there and it was within the parameters of things that I would eat, then I would absolutely try it. And I would probably want to try it a few times so that I would have an opportunity to really see if it was something that I liked or didn't like. I am a little bit hesitant about the fact that it's brewer's yeast in that I already don't drink alcohol and I don't like the smell, taste, or appearance of beer. Maybe that's one way in which I'm picky is that I won't consume alcohol. Yeah. Because it's poison. Yeah. And that's, and that's a preference too. So 
Another one too, and I think this one's really interesting as far as food pickiness is locations. Yeah. Locations of food, where you get food. That to me, I have in my past life experienced this before I became an adult and wanted to try new things and got more adventurous. As an adult now, I'm like, yeah, that that place looks sketchy. I'll go eat there. (laughs) Yeah, this is so interesting. I ran into this first in working with children with an autism diagnosis for the most part, I think, where it was not only a certain brand, but a certain restaurant that was of that brand. So even though it was McDonald's, generally, it really had to be that one McDonald's at that one location. And even though they would never tell the difference at all from any of them, because you can't because they're homogenous, they would only ever eat food from that one place. And it was it was something again, I just I couldn't quite understand. And I guess we'll be getting into this more because we've really just been unpacking what is pickiness. How does it show up? What does it look like? Yeah, this is one of those things is that a restaurant can be a place where a individual will go eat and very few other places, maybe like a few restaurants, but it's just that small handful of places that they'll go. And what can be interesting there, too, is they might be willing to try a lot of foods from that place, but nowhere else, which they might end up having an okay diet based on that, but they're spending all their money at those restaurants. Yeah. So when we talk about that picky eating stuff, it could be any of those things. It doesn't necessarily have to be specific foods. It could be any number of issues around food and obtaining it. Yep. Okay. So as we sort of mentioned before, we definitely want to be clear to point out that dietary preferences and like choices in terms of just picking what your diet looks like, that's not considered picky eating in this case, right? So a lot of times people might choose against a particular group of food, not because they wouldn't eat that or that it grosses them out or anything like that, but because it does not fit within their lifestyle to choose that particular type of food for a specific reason. So as long as people are eating along a particular diet that is nutritionally adequate, that is approved by a licensed medical professional and is safe, then we wouldn't necessarily call that picky eating if it has to do with selecting this diet because it meets certain values and maybe health parameters, as opposed to unwilling to try anything new because it's not the thing that you're used to and maybe not because of that one particular texture or location or color or presentation and that you would be otherwise willing to try it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So like, for example, people who follow like a vegetarian or a plant-based diet, which is narrower than an omnivorous diet, right? Yeah. If you really look at what they can eat, it's not inherently nutritionally deficient. It can be very healthy. As a matter of fact, I'm healthier now in my life than I've ever been in my entire life as a vegetarian. Right. I eat better. I feel better. I have a normal weight compared to the 300 pounds that I weighed when I would eat fried chicken all the time. So when you talk about vegetarian diets, people think that they're nutritionally deficient, but the truth is, is they are approved and you can get your needs met. It doesn't mean that you're picky. And it is important to point out that I've met enough people who tried to follow a vegetarian diet and all they ate were cookies because, yes, technically cookies don't contain any meat and that's not a nutritionally adequate diet. And so they would say that they were vegetarian. They would get really sickly because all they were eating was basically butter and sugar. French fries and Oreos. Yeah. And (laughs) then they would go back to eating the more inclusive diet that they were eating before and then they would be in better health. My argument has always been I wouldn't call that a vegetarian diet so much as I would call that a cookie monster diet. And Mm -hmm. a cookie monster diet is not an approved diet. No, 
Not at all. Simply excluding a particular, simply saying you're not going to eat meat doesn't mean you're choosing the correct foods. And there are plenty of inappropriate options out there. I actually heard about a guy once who decided to prove that he thought dieting was pointless. And so he went on an all Twinkie based diet for so many months and lost a bunch of weight because he just restricted his calories and only ate Twinkies. And his whole point was calories in calories out are the thing that determines your weight. And that's a whole side topic for another time, I think. But the point being that just choosing away from certain foods doesn't necessarily mean that you're choosing the correct foods. And that's why I mentioned that it has to be nutritionally adequate to look at this and say, this isn't picky eating. It's just choosing a particular diet lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. Another example, or I guess non-example here, is that there are some religions that will issue certain groups of foods that are easily replaced by nutrients available in other foods. For example, some religions, they don't eat animals with cloved feet. Some religions don't eat fish. Some religions don't eat animal products at all. Some specific diets or these religious diets or otherwise will avoid particular groups like small subsets of groups i'm aware of certain they're supposed to be health-based diets whatever that might mean where they will avoid legumes for example for whatever reason that's the case but they otherwise are going to meet the nutrients that would be available in those legumes by adopting other foods instead so those aren't necessarily picky eating because they're still getting that nutritionally adequate diet so much as they are restricting some element of their diet that they would otherwise eat just because either it's a religious reason or they think that it's a health reason or they might have some other reason like allergies or something that has them choose that diet differently yeah or you might see an issue where parents will prevent their children from having any access to highly processed or refined sugary foods, which is just not necessary for a nutritional diet at all. It wouldn't constitute a failure to provide adequate nutrition or really label the child being a picky eater. They could still be getting all the things they need while still restricting those highly processed foods that really don't have anything to do with anything. Right. Just because a parent says you can't eat Skittles or like have ice cream doesn't mean that that's like an example of restricting their diet or in such a way that it would be appropriate to call that child or that family picky eaters. Right. So I think that we covered about all of it, right? We've covered our bases as far as what picky eaters look like for the most part. I feel pretty good about that. I mean, we're about 30 minutes into this episode-ish, hopefully about halfway through. And I think it's probably time we actually ask the question we titled this episode, we billboarded with, which is why do people become picky eaters or why are people picky eaters? Because although, as we mentioned, we're mostly talking about children a lot of the time, there are lots of adult picky eaters as well. So Shane, why do children and adults or anywhere in between, why do they become picky eaters? Well, it's mostly for the same reasons why adults become picky eaters. So most adult picky eaters start out as child picky eaters. So we just lump them together here. That's kind of what we're going to talk about for the rest of this piece is it's a group of people that kind of they've continued on these habits. So one critical event is when a child required breathing and feeding tombs early in life. So essentially premature babies, they may have had some exposure to some issues with breathing, some issues with feeding. And ultimately what can happen is the tube can actually irritate the mouth and the esophagus and cause it to have an increased sensitivity to texture. So early on, they get exposed to all this stuff that actually causes lifelong challenges around food. Another common one is that if early in life a child experiences choking, vomiting, respiratory infections, or force feeding around particular types of foods, then they might start to develop an aversion to those foods or sometimes even just eating in general, which obviously can be very problematic. So those experiences that are really unpleasant and often sometimes even potentially dangerous, such as the whole vomiting thing or choking thing, 
that can lead to this more food selective behavior down the road. And although I didn't really want to go down this rabbit hole in this episode, the research on food aversion or taste aversion with respect to food is pretty dense. And it shows that this is a very, very powerful phenomenon. I mean, if you introduce a food that one time, even a food that was highly preferred to, let's just go with a rat, for example, because I know some of those studies, if one time that food that they used to love makes them sick, like really sick, they will avoid that food basically indefinitely, even if they're given a bunch of other food for a long period of time, and then they come back to that food, so they didn't even have to try it, then they'll continue to avoid it. And not always, and for a lot of different ways that this might be the case, but taste aversion is a very, very powerful phenomenon that can lead people away from food. So you can imagine that these early experiences, if a child is choking or vomiting on a particular texture, flavor, presentation, color, what have you, that they're then more likely to avoid that again in the future, even if they don't have the language around that. I don't like that particular type of food. It's whatever cues were associated with it were powerful enough. And you can imagine why this might have an advantage, evolutionarily speaking. If there are things that make us violently ill, then we learn immediately to avoid those things and never eat them again. And that the more likely an organism was to learn that one time to avoid that food, the more likely they were to survive long enough to reproduce. Yeah. If you've ever had food poisoning, then you are acutely aware of how intense a problem like that can prevent you from accessing that food again. And it doesn't require any language. Yeah. I've gotten sick from food and I will certainly avoid certain foods as a result. It takes me a lot to smell toffee nut syrup from Starbucks. <laughs> Just so you know, it took one event and that was 15 years ago. And that's still, I have a hard time with that. Wow. I had a friend who got really sick after eating those veggie straws that like yeah. the, the, those things. And for those who maybe aren't aware, essentially what they do is they take a dehydrated powdered form of a few vegetables and then they sort of shape them into what look like hollow French fries and then they're crunchy like chips. That's about it. They're kind of a salty, savory snack that you can have. Anyway, he got sick. I think it was actually completely unrelated to the chips. I think he was actually just getting sick. But after he ate a bunch of those and then was sick and he's like never touched them since. That'll do it. It only takes one. It only takes one. So there's also a hypothesis that children can experience anxiety that causes them to be food selective. It's unclear, though, if developing negative reactions to food causes the anxiety or if the anxiety causes a negative reaction to the food. It's very much a chicken or the egg type of question, right? Yep. And since the latter is objectively impossible to determine, I would bet on the former as a more conservative estimation. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense to say the one we know definitely can happen is that if there are negative reactions to food, the person will experience some anxiety or stress around that food. That we know happens for sure. But we can't really measure the stress cause effect relationship where the stress precedes the food. And there's not really a reason to believe that there would be a stress or anxiety reaction preceding the food if they'd never tried that food before unless they had an aversive history of trying new foods. But even then, that had to come from somewhere. And so it makes both philosophical sense and logical sense, I guess. Yeah. And we have direct observation of a aversive history or an unpleasant experience with food leading to stress and very impossible basically to say that stress leads to an aversion to the food. If that makes sense, if that's clear. Yeah, I think it makes sense when you talk about the idea that we're not born hating certain foods, really. Yeah. 
right? We have to have some kind of exposure to it, I would imagine, for the most part, or at least to a texture similar to it or a color similar to it. I would say that there's got to be some learning history there. That makes the most sense scientifically and logically. There are some tastes that almost everyone is going to be averse to um cilantro <laughs> not not everyone <laughs> but like feces soap dirt and actually maybe not dirt kids eat dirt all the time but mm-hmm. a lot of those things that are really really dangerous are things that almost everybody is going to have a immediate aversion to which is again important survival trait to have so Finally, strictness and use of aversive strategies to encourage eating such as yelling, criticizing, belittling, shaming, rules about eating before leaving the table, force feeding, punishments for failure to eat, and any other aversive association that might be developed within a child's relationship to food can all result in inappropriate feeding behaviors or habits. Yeah. So all of those things that pair up with food in general, the things that get related to food in general that are problematic or they don't feel very good, they can actually turn into larger problems later. Right. So those are some ways in which some of that food selectivity can develop. But here's how it happens for a lot, if not most people that end up being picky eaters. So it kind of goes like this. They'll find a food or a set of foods that they like, then they'll choose that food more often. The person will specifically not choose to eat foods that are not in the category of the known preferred foods. And so what this will often look like for children is that, let's just say, for example, during dinner, the child doesn't finish their non-preferred food. Honestly, the research even backs this up, but let's just say vegetables. Like, that's the thing. Children, generally speaking, don't like vegetables. Maybe they don't like salad if they're Shane. Accurate. (laughs) Maybe It's other things, you know, whatever it might be. Let's just say that they don't finish it. All right, no big deal. They ate some of it, maybe even most of it. It's fine. Maybe next time. Then the next time they end up eating a little less Then the next time. It's a little less still until eventually they're eating none of that non-preferred food. Now, the person in charge of the meal and ensuring that everyone gets adequate nutrition is likely to try a couple of things. First, they're probably going to put more of the food that that child likes on their plate just so that they can at least ensure that they're getting enough to feel full. And second, they're probably going to try and pressure the child to eat the food that the child is starting to neglect. Then the caregiver might also try and put more of the non-preferred food on the plate as a sort of maybe a kind of punishment or encouragement, if you will, although mostly it's like, hey, you're not eating this, so I'm going to give you more of it. So in this case, it's intended in a way to be punishment. And so they'll put more of that on their plate for not eating it. You can guess how well that probably goes if they're already not choosing to eat it. (laughs) The child at this point is simply going to refuse to eat the food. I'm just going to pick asparagus as the food to throw under the bus. So in this case, we have the child eating everything but the asparagus that's on their plate. Maybe the first time they tried a few of them, the next time they tried like one, and a few times down the road, they just aren't touching it whatsoever. And so the parent's like, okay, we got to eat this asparagus. We got to get some healthy stuff in here. I'm going to give you a little bit more food so that you're getting enough, but I'm also going to give you more asparagus and you better eat it all this time because you're not getting enough of it. Yeah. Yeah. That might be a thing that happens, right? Yeah. And so now what might happen is that the child is simply going to refuse to eat that food altogether. Now they put more on there and they're trying to tell them like, you have to eat this. And now the caregiver might try some strategy like, okay, well, you don't get dessert if you don't eat this. Or maybe even you don't get to play on the Nintendo Switch or do whatever fun post-meal activity often follows this meal ceremony thing if you don't eat whatever. And the child still does nothing. Well, now the caregiver has nothing left to take away. 
And so next, maybe the caregiver will try and give nothing to the child except that non-preferred food and only offer the preferred food if the child eats the non-preferred food. So they're like, you can have your mashed potatoes, but only if you eat your asparagus first. Again, child does nothing. Now the pressure is really on the caregiver, who is probably at this point very desperate, will take any victory they can get to get the child to eat, even if it's just eat something, right? Even if it's that preferred food again. Mm -hmm. And so the child, which is important here, will wait indefinitely. <laughs> and we'll get <laughs> They to, will wait you out. They will wait you out. And the caregiver will always have to eventually give in in some capacity. You can't starve a child, right? This is not, it's not legal. It's not recommended. It's not acceptable. Just to be clear, we aren't recommending any of these strategies, right? As a disclaimer, we are not proponents for child starvation. We do not like it. We do not support it. Please do not starve your child. Yeah, we're, we're not implying here that you should wait them out. Just because we're saying that they will wait you out, we're not saying you wait them out. We're just saying this is something that happens. You can't wait them out. Don't even bother trying. Just trying to highlight essentially how this goes, right? And so the caregiver at this point is likely to turn to using some kind of supplements to ensure the child isn't dying of malnutrition. And this cycle is just going to keep going. So the child is going to continue to find a food that they don't want, not eat it, and only eat that probably shrinking number of foods from their perspective, like, I've got this thing I really, really like. Why am I going to eat that thing I don't really, really like? It's okay. It's fine. I don't hate it, but I don't love it either. So I'm really just going to focus on this thing I really like. And now in opposition to the thing I really like, the thing that I was neutral toward or I was okay with, now I hate it because it's not the thing that I love. And again, they'll just, they'll select away and away and away from those other foods. And the caregiver is kind of at a loss because they have very little that they are, we'll get in the treatments later, but they have very little to do in terms of, well, I've tried all these things. I've tried punishing them. I've tried taking away the dessert. I tried taking away their fun. I tried loading up all that non-preferred food. I tried all this stuff and they still won't do it. Got to do something, right? Yeah. And I mean, you're going to have children because they are people that have preferences and that is perfectly okay. Yeah. Like, good point. I like asparagus. My daughter does not like asparagus. That is perfectly okay. I'm not going to force her to eat asparagus. I'm going to make sure she gets her nutrition. Right. You know, and I think that's an important designation too, is being able to be mindful of that. Sure. So the gist of all this is that the child learns that if they wait long enough, they will get their preferred food. All they have to do is wait. All they have to do is nothing. And nothing is very, 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 very easy to do. I remember having to sit at my dining room table because I didn't want to eat my spaghetti when I was a kid in order to get my garlic bread. And I ended up getting my garlic bread at some point. Yep. Or I was fine. I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't get garlic bread, but I don't have to eat pasta. That's good. Yeah. Now, alternatively, some children learn instead to raise hell to get their preferred food. So they will throw all kinds of tantrums. My daughter used to throw tantrums in restaurants to the degree that we wouldn't take her to restaurants. Wow. They were that bad. And so for them, the parent will be the one trying to wait them out until the child learns that all they have to do is raise the stakes to the point that the caregiver has to give in. Yep. I can tell you this as a parent, unless you have good strategies up front, which we're not going to talk about interventions now, but unless you prepare yourself and prepare the situation, you will not win a fight in a power struggle with a child. Right. They will find every hole in your contingencies. They will find every gap that you have not seen. That is the whole thing with children. They know how to wiggle their way in yeah. and get what they want. It's really impressive. They will poke holes in those plans. You're not, <laughs> not going to win if you try and have that power struggle. Just trying to go back to this point of if they're pitching a fit, if they start by yelling one time, 
and the parent might have the immediate reaction of okay just don't yell like fine just you need to be quiet and like here here's your thing and next time the kid yells and the parents like nope i'm not giving in this time i'm not going to do it and then the kid throws something they're like fine do not throw things here just calm down and for them they don't see it as giving in they see it as a i'm trying to calm them i'm trying to ease the tension in this situation right i'm trying to just make them feel better about this or just make this end often is kind of what it is especially if you're in a public place especially then and the child just learns every time like the parent will try and hold out and then the kid's like just got to raise the stakes this time i'm flipping the table this time i'm starting a fire this time i'm like gonna go attack some random person that's nearby you know or this time i'm gonna go harm myself that whatever it is they will just keep raising the stakes if you just try and wait them out in their problem behavior. So yeah, as you said, very critical to get out in front of it and have preventative strategies so you don't end up in a place where they have to raise the stakes. So think of it like this. If you call a customer service rep because you have a complaint and you need a resolution and that person that you talk to does not resolve your complaint, you're going to ask for somebody higher up, right? You're going to raise the stakes yourself. You're going to go to that supervisor. You're going to do something different because what you're doing isn't working. You might also try the yelling and screaming. <laughs> you might do the yelling and screaming. Maybe that's your thing, but it's not that customer service rep's fault. So maybe be kind to that person. They're just doing the job. Yeah, not not so recommending <laughs> this, by the way. Just saying that some people will do that. They'll, they'll have the stakes in like, their problem behavior toward those customer service reps. Yeah, so that's kind of how, that's what kids do. Like They see that what they're doing isn't working. You're still presenting an aversive, and they're going to go ahead and ramp it up. They're going to the next thing that works for them, just like you would in the same type of situation in the presence of a stimulus that you didn't really want to deal with. Right. Now, another way that this food selectivity can develop is that when the caregivers for that child only ever model and provide access to their own very limited food preferences. For example, children who are raised by parents who never prepare vegetables, those children are going to develop exactly the same eating habits and proclivities and aversions as their parents because they only ever have access to that limited range of food that their parents provide. And I think this is one of the more interesting parts of pickiness and experience with food in general is that there are some genetic traits that cause people to experience foods in a distasteful way. So for example, there is a gene that causes some forms of wheat to taste unbearably bitter which is such a bummer yeah. to think about. Could you imagine biting into a good buttered piece of bread and it just tasting awful? Right. That's such a bummer to think about. Or, you know, for some people, pork might have a floral taste, which is very strange for me to think about, sure. but somebody may have that. But to others, it smells and tastes like sweat or urine. So it really just depends on that gene. But one that we see a lot, this is one of those things that's a center of controversy, is that... <laughs> Cilantro, specifically. Yep. For some people, it tastes really soapy. It's got a soapiness to it when they eat it, and some people really like the way it tastes. Yeah. I can't stand cilantro. It doesn't taste soapy to me, but I just don't like it. Oh, okay. I really like cilantro, and I eat it in most of my food, <laughs> but it's also not like a critical food that needs to be in everything in order for you to be healthy, so it's a preference thing. Yeah, but I think that goes further to speak to how genetic traits can actually influence the way you experience food. Right. Yeah, no, that's very important. Now, there are some obvious health implications of being a picky eater. So, for example, people who avoid fruits and vegetables will often lack fiber in their diet and as a result may experience gastrointestinal distress. They might experience constipation or upset stomach or things like that. Children are often fairly resilient, so they may actually be able to avoid major long-term negative health effects, even with a restrictive diet. But it's actually very important for kids to get those nutrients that they need, and some will experience developmental difficulties. Very frequently missed nutrients in food-selective diets. Some of the more common ones are missing out on iron, calcium, 
zinc, a lot of the vitamins that are available in things like fruits and vegetables. I saw some studies that suggested that people may have low energy, may have a weakened or compromised immune system, and therefore be more prone to illness and disease. So they generally just feel worse all around, basically. They might have overweight and underweight problems. And if they're eating really sugary or highly processed foods, they might also have some dental problems if that's the one food that they're being selective toward. So I knew a guy that was a vegetarian in my town that really had a hard time. He didn't eat any vegetables and fruits. He just kind of was on that pizza French fry diet and ended up being at risk for scurvy. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, Whoa. that's how that's how little citrus he ate. So <laughs> be mindful. I didn't even know that was possible. That's intense. Yeah. Right. But his doctor told him you need to eat an orange every now and again. Yeah. Or else you're going to get scurvy. Wow. And so kind of going back to different health issues and stuff, there are some reports that suggest lower cognitive functioning. I think of when I don't eat well or I don't eat enough, how tired I get, how I don't really think as well, how I kind of have like fuzzy thoughts and stuff like that. Like I could see how continued exposure to poor eating habits or that lack of nutritional need, you know, like meeting those needs could result in something like that. Right. And there are some important implications here as well that are of the social variety that you might not necessarily think about. So with respect to children, their caregivers will often feel shame and embarrassment, which can be redirected back toward the child because of that child's picky eating. The caregivers might also spend exorbitant amounts of money trying to both cater to their child's selective choices or else seeking out anything else that their child might be willing to try. So if there's only one place that they have to go, then they're always driving there. They're always having to pay whatever the cost is from that one special place or for that one special thing that the child's willing to eat just to ensure that they are getting something. And that can be hard for the family. Yeah, that's a hardship that's simply based around food, right? That can be quite a challenge. So, and that goes into the next point, which is that parents will likely avoid bringing their child to social situations or otherwise try to hide their child's problem, which actually prevents social interaction for the child, but also for the parents. The parents end up getting isolated as a result of avoiding these social situations that could lead to social disapproval or any sort of judgment or anything like that. Yeah. And another one is that and we kind of already mentioned this, but because of the fuss that is being made around that child's selectivity, that can also really impact that child's relationship to food in a couple of different ways. I mean, for one, they might really enjoy the additional attention they get because they have this unique thing about them, which is that they only eat these certain types of foods. And alternatively, they might feel really bad about the fact that they feel like they're sort of being looked at as the pariah of the family, the one who makes life difficult for everyone else. So it can just be this really complicated relationship with food that's going to be hard for them down the road as well. Yeah. And ultimately, this turns into a significant source of frustration and stress for people, right? The more that you're struggling around something that should be fairly simple, that's just an additional stressor in that person's life that can actually cause quite a bit of problems and a lot of tension between members of the family. Right. And even when we look at those families who they're perfectly happy to have everyone be on the same extremely restrictive picky eating diet, you know, with caregivers who are the ones who are in charge of this. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. We'll only eat chicken nuggets. That's fine. The child will take those habits with them when they're out meeting new friends. And that might result in the child being teased, excluded, or otherwise treated as some sort of curiosity by their peers when they're out and around them. And that can be also emotionally impactful for the child. And that can lead into different repertoires as an adult, right? So that can lead into something where picky eaters who are adults feel shame. They hide their picky eating. They avoid going to social situations because they are such picky eaters that they don't want to 
expose themselves to their friends and colleagues. Yeah, they'll often carry around on their person or in their bag some nutritional supplements to ensure that they don't get scurvy as well and, and other things. <laughs> and also they'll just sort of pack their preferred food, the one or two things that they'll eat. Now, actually, one or two is pretty extreme. Usually it's between 20 and 30 or maybe up to 40 things is a very common number that I saw. There's a huge range of what might be considered picky eating. But anyway, those very few things that they will eat, they'll just pack them around in these little snack packs so that they always have access to that food and can avoid either feeling hungry or avoid being put in a situation where they're expected to eat something else. So this is different than somebody who has a restricted diet that is not commonly found in social situations. Right. So as somebody who has a restricted diet, I carry around supplements because not everybody caters to vegetarians. True. <laughs> so that's very different. That's a very different process. And similarly, and sort of as we mentioned, adults will often avoid those social situations that involve foods, even if there are options of their preferred foods. And again, it has to do with this trying to hide the fact that everyone might notice the fact that they're only eating that one thing and everyone else is eating a few things that are available and they're just picking that one thing that's the thing that they actually like. I think it's important to note that they often want to change. They want to have a different experience around food, but they experience so much fear and stress around trying new foods that becomes a problem. So one common description that we found when we were doing the research was that people will experience fear of disgust, and that is why they won't try new foods. Yeah, it's not even the other foods themselves. It's the fear that they will be disgusted if they try that food. And again, based not on any sort of experience with that particular food or even that group that that food might belong to, but just, I don't know if I'm going to like it, so I won't try it. Yeah. So of course, some adults are perfectly fine with their selective eating habits and that's perfectly okay, but may nevertheless experience the deleterious health effects of an excessively narrow range of foods that they consume as previously mentioned. So they're perfectly fine with it. Yeah. Now, it is important to note that although preferences do change as people get older, you don't just wake up one day and want to eat a food you've always hated, right? The only way, as far as we know, the only way to find foods or forms of foods that you like is to try them repeatedly and to try them in multiple types of preparations. There is a group, I think it's called Food Dudes, but there's been some research to basically show that at least five tastings are often necessary to get an idea of the extent to which you like or don't like a food. Even if you don't like it, you might want to try it just prepared differently. So you might not like vegetables fresh, but you might really like them sauteed. You might not like vegetables steamed, but you might really like them boiled, maybe, I don't know. Roasted even. Ro yeah, there you go. Roasted. Those types of preparations are things that are more palatable to people, and then they're more likely to be willing to try them and to eat them. So just to point out, you're not going to grow out of your habits, but you might find people who are compassionate and thoughtful and will help offer you the opportunity to begin to be a little more adventurous, a little more open-minded with your eating. And they might provide that safe space to do that. And in that way, you might kind of grow out of it because you've got that support. You might also get a specific intervention, but you're not just going to all of a sudden be like, you know, I hated coconuts yesterday. I think I like them today. And then just try it, you know? Yep. That is not how it happened with salad for me. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about some other interesting tidbits around this because we've been talking all about kind of what it looks like and different experiences around it and some implications, but I think there's some other important notes that we want to include here, right? Just some stats that I found. One study that I found from, I think, 2010, I have all these studies in the show notes here, it reported that 13% to 22% of the children in that study were labeled as picky eaters. 
I did see one study that was a little more recent that reported numbers as high as 54%. Wow. Yeah. I was a little surprised by that, though over half of the children in that study were labeled as picky eaters. One survey in 2015 found that 26% of adults reported themselves to be picky eaters as well. And of the adults who reported being picky eaters, up to 75 and maybe even higher said that they started being picky eaters in childhood. Wow. So those habits carried on. Yep. It's pretty impressive that something can maintain for that long, right? Could you imagine just not, I mean, I could imagine being so stubborn that I wouldn't eat any food or maybe having an experience around a particular food item that I won't eat. I mean, I mentioned toffee nut before, but that's a pretty staggering statistic. Yeah, for sure. So I think it's time to debunk some myths about picky eating as well. Yes. I want to take this first one here. Do it. This is that I ran into this as I was doing the research for this is the idea that offering incentives leads to picky eating. No, this is not the case. Usually children are picky eaters first, and then the incentive is offered to try and get those children to not be picky eaters. Appropriate use of incentives are actually often included in the treatment of picky eating, at least as part of it, or at least initially. But no, using incentives does not lead to picky eating. That's nonsense. Whew, that's that good old bribery argument, right? Everybody yep. talks about bribery and they just, they, mm. that's a different conversation for a different day. All right. Another myth is that they'll grow out of it. We covered this earlier. No, you won't just like new foods unless you are exposed to them. You have to try them. You have to try them in multiple preparations. You don't just quote, grow out of it. Yep. Another myth is that the child is just being stubborn, being difficult, or just trying to exert their own control. Actually, there is usually some sort of aversive history or experience with the food that they're trying. The child may not understand at all that what they're doing, that what their parents is feeling is that the child is challenging their control. Mostly, they're just trying to avoid something they don't like. This is not like a, I'm going to get you for trying to make me do this sort of thing. This is a, I don't want to do this, so I'm not going to do it. And that's basically as complex as it gets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't need to get more complex than that, really. It's that simple, because even with that simplicity, it's still a problem. <laughs> yes. Also, you always hear that they'll eat when they're hungry. I hear that a lot. Many, if not most of them, will wait you out. They will do everything they can to wait you out. Furthermore, starving is not any more likely to make them eat the food that you are holding over them, which to them appears to be the cause of their starvation. So now you are creating this whole loop of problems because, quote, They'll eat when they're hungry. That's not the case. Right. Another myth is that children are naturally selective about their food. That is that they'll only eat those fatty, sugary things. While most children do prefer those things, children are actually naturally very curious about food. And most of the time, their aversion to food comes from those unpleasant experiences that they may have had, either with certain textures, flavors, presentations, or if they got sick or something like that. Yeah. And another myth, too, that we want to debunk is if you offer the food... 20 plus times, then they'll eat it, right? Keep offering it, keep offering it, keep offering it, they'll eat it. Truthfully, although frequent presentation can be a part of an intervention to introduce new foods by itself, or if done inappropriately, it will either not work or it will make things worse. Yep. And finally, the last myth, and one of the important ones here to end on, is that there's a myth that there's nothing that can be done about pickiness. Just not true. There are many successful treatments for picky eating, both in children and in adults, but we'll cover that in our next episode. Yep. I think that about wraps it up. What do you think? I feel pretty good about that. And we're right about at our time, so I think we did well. Yeah, look at that. That's pretty impressive for us. Perfect. One of my major take-home points that I want to highlight here is just that 
people are picky because of an aversive history with food and because they learn to just choose the foods that they know that they like and they don't have to eat the foods that they don't like at the moment. And then they just keep selecting away from those foods that aren't as high up on that pyramid of foods that they really do like. And so as they cut away underneath everything, then they just narrow and narrow the range. And that's essentially how most picky eating gets shaped up for most people. Yeah. And I think my take on point two would be, it's okay to be a somewhat picky eater. If it's not impacting your quality of life, your health or social interactions, you're allowed to have preferences. That's perfectly okay. Very good point. And your children are allowed to have preferences. That is perfectly okay. The goal here is not to undo picky eating, but to understand how picky eating can have larger impacts if it's not addressed appropriately. That's a very good point. And I think we definitely didn't say that super clearly in our overall discussion here is that having a preference for foods is perfectly acceptable as long as you have a nutritionally adequate diet. It's really when it becomes inadequate, leading to all those other health problems or various other emotional, psychological problems. That's when it is something that probably warrants intervention when those choices start to impact quality of life in a negative way. So I think that's a really good point, Shane. Yep. And I think that's all I've got. I think the only one I would add to that is that this can come with a lot of those emotional impacts and stressful things where you will miss out on social opportunities on you'll cause undue burden and stress around general mealtime routines and habits that all that stuff can just be really difficult for families to deal with. So that's just something I think is really important to understand that when you see this thing happening, this is often a very difficult, stressful, anxiety-inducing thing that people are dealing with and to try and be compassionate toward them rather than judgmental. I agree with that 100%. Perfect. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this thing up then. If you would like to tell us about your food preferences, your issues with food selectivity or your favorite foods that you are selective toward, we're happy to hear those things. If you would like to find us on other platforms, we're on pretty much all of them. So you can find us there and please reach out to us on social media and email. Our handle, of course, is at podcast. all those things. I mostly monitor email and SoundCloud stuff. And Shane, you handle some of the social media stuff. Yep. So I'm around and yeah, I'm pretty present on social media. You can either find me on my own profile or find me on the Why We Do What We Do profile on Instagram too and Facebook. So I'm all around. So just reach out to us. Perfect. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you for potting with me today, Shane. Yeah. Thank you for having me on this pod today, Abraham. <laughs> Perfect. All right. This is Abraham and we're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.